from Mark chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we praise you and thank you for your word. Would you now, by your spirit in all of us, make it living and active, Father, that the truth of it would renew our minds. And Father, subsequently, we would be changed and transformed by it as we would walk in communion with you. So Father, in this moment, let us unharness from anything that would hinder us from hearing you. Forgive us, Lord, for any sins and thought word and deed that would separate us from you. And let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. This could be considered a very generic text. I could simply say you're supposed to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself, and say the benediction and sit down. But the question is, is how, how do we engage in this? How do we live this out? How do we love God? You ever thought about that? How do I love God? In many ways, we have been given many reasons why we should love God, because he's done so much for us, etc. But that takes us to a place of obligation. And I don't think God really wants to be loved for what he's done, but he really wants to be loved for who he is. Would you not say that about yourself? Do you really want to be loved for what you do? Or do you want to be loved and desire to be loved for who you are as a person? And that invitation of God is to allow us to start to see that it's not obligation that leads us to walking in communion and love with Him and to, and to truly love Him and experience love with Him. 1 John 4 says that we love God because what? He first loved us. So again, how did God love us? How did God pursue you and me? We had a baptism this morning. Calvin was very gracious to allow the water to be poured over him, but it was very symbolic, wasn't it? Of the Spirit of God and the life and the covering of God over your life. It's a beautiful symbol of your commitment to Him. So truly, it's an outward symbol of the inward working, but God brought Calvin to a place where he started to see his sin, did he not? Brought us all to a place of seeing where we were sinful. God's pursuit, and he also allowed us to discover the truth that we are hopelessly unable to relieve ourselves of the guilt and the shame of our sin. True? Not true. Okay, and then we hear the gospel, which really is the word for good news. The gospel is a message. The gospel is the truth of what Jesus Christ did for us. Most of you know the Roman scriptures that all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, right? But then we hear the glorious news that God himself, in the person of his son Jesus Christ, 
comes here to earth, perfect divinity, perfect humanity, married together in one human and one divine creature called the Son of God. And he lays down his life. He becomes, as Hebrews says, the propitiation for our sins. His death was the death that we owed God for our sin. It was the wages that we owed God for our sin. And if I couldn't find and you couldn't find someone to pay that debt for you, then you would have to pay it for yourself. And your death without the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ would truly leave you in a place of being absent from communion with God forever. That's what death is. It's separation from God. So we hear the good news that Jesus did that. And so we start to see that there's a possibility that we have a hope that we could be forgiven. Now my question right now is, what would move God, who's been offended by our sin, to be kind enough to bring us to a place of conviction of it, kind enough to bring us to the place of truth to discover there's nothing that we can functionally do about it, and then ultimately offer us a hope that it has all been done in Jesus Christ. We have lost it all. Jesus did it all. And subsequently, in our salvation, we get it all. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's in that totality that we should truly experience it and receive it, is that God is love. 1 John 4 says God is love. 1 Corinthians 13 at the end says, Now abide of faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Anybody ever think of why the Word of God, would, why Paul would say in that scripture that the greatest is love? My prayer in asking God to help bringing enlightenment to that in my, in my own life is I believe this, faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, Hope is what we have in Christ, who's the living word, and in his work and his redemptive work. But as 1 John 4 declares, God himself, the person of God, is love. And that's why it's the greatest. So God is love. So God cannot be anything but love. And so God ordained, when you and I were created, what did he create us for? He created us for communion with him. Remember Adam? Adam was certainly created by God, Eve is created by God, and they walked in communion with God, in the beauty of communion with God. True, not true. Then all of a sudden we see sin introduced by the enemy, and how does the enemy seduce Eve? It's certainly not just saying, hey, there's a cool apple hanging on that tree, why don't you eat it? It certainly was by him seducing Eve with the question that introduces doubt to her. He says to her, did God really say, don't eat of the tree? And you think about your own lives, about how your greatest battle, for the most part, is whether you really believe God is who he says he is, and that God will do what he says he'll do. We are all doubters. And the enemy wants to seduce us into a place of doubt. So when we look at the gospel, when we look at God's pursuit of us, the temptation from hell itself is to doubt the reality of it and the battle of that. And so obviously we know that Eve ends up eating. 
she gets separated, certainly from God and from Adam, and she gives it to, the fruit to Adam and Adam eats, and obviously they've got a problem. And one of the things I want to share with you just from this story out of Genesis is, is God really a cruel and unkind God? Did he really get angry with Adam? So I'll walk you through the scenario. Adam sins, and what does Adam do? Being the mighty man of faith and power, he goes and hides. Because he's got guilt and he's got shame because he's naked. And God comes and God asks a question which could be certainly considered a rhetorical question. He says, Adam, where are you? Anybody here want to think that God didn't know where he was? I mean, I don't think so. I think God really knew where he was. So the question is, what would God ask Adam that question for? What was God inviting Adam into doing? He was inviting Adam into discovering where he was and why he was there. So Adam answers, I'm naked and I was hiding. So God asked another question and says, how do you know that you're naked? If I were you're really a southerner, you'd hear that naked, but it's naked. And uh, how would God ask him, and why would God ask him, how do you know that you're naked? Except he wanted him to discover that the aware, his self-awareness was a result and a fruit of his sin and disobedience. And so we see Adam step into that. How did you know that you were naked? And the point is, Adam here does the first wonderfully profound job of blame shifting. This woman that you gave me. How about that? He blame shifts not only to Eve, but to God. It's your fault because you gave her to me, and it's her fault because she deceived me. So you see him try to dodge and start to try to answer and find an answer, an excuse for his sin, and he couldn't find one. So God turns to Eve, and Eve does the same, same thing. She starts to blame the snake. She blames the serpent. And then God deals with the enemy and speaks to him and talks about how Jesus himself will crush his head. He comes back to Eve, tells her the consequences of her sin, comes back to Adam and tells him the consequences of his sin. But then God himself does something amazing, and he does what? He kills an animal to make a skin and a covering to cover their sin and their shame, their guilt and their shame. And here you see a beautiful type and a, literally a prophetic voice in picture form of who God is and his plan of salvation and redemption way back in Genesis. Because God is love. He is a just God. He is a merciful God. And that same God that would ask Adam why he sinned asks us and makes us aware of why we are sinful. It makes us aware of it. But his purpose was is that he wouldn't ask the question, he wouldn't do the invitation to us unless he had the solution for us. And that we find in the beauty of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And so God makes us aware because he is loving 
but he's also love. But he also created Adam for communion with him. Do you think God enjoyed walking with Adam in the evening and talking with him? Yeah. I mean, Adam and Eve were not just superfluous creations of God. They were very meaningful creations of God that he enjoyed. How do you think God feels about you? Are you a created being like Adam and Eve? And might God not enjoy communion and fellowship with you? So God in his redemptive work was not looking just to keep us out of hell. God in his redemptive work was being exactly who he is, love, and offering us the glorious hope that he himself had paid the price laying down his life and conquering sin, death, hell, and the enemy. And he offers that to us because it's his desire that we would once again be restored to communion with him. In our salvation, folks, we just don't have a ticket to keep us out of hell. It's not an obligatory thing that we have to do to prove something to God because God has already moved in his love and redeemed us for no other reason than I believe. It's who he is. He was fulfilling that which he created us for, restoring us to communion and being one with him and walking in fellowship with him. And it's also because for us, he wanted us to become part of the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters, but we are here on earth, human expressions of who God is. I mean, do you believe that the Spirit of God lives inside of you? You will tell me that theologically, but our reality oftentimes declares a far chasm between our theology and our reality. But God has invited us to experience and to come back into fellowship with him, to be able to be one with him. How do I know this? Jesus passionately prays for it in John John 17. Remember his prayer the night before he died? He said, Father, that they may be one as you and I are one. Oneness. How does that happen? Is that just a metaphor? Is it just a nice spiritual thing? Is it something that's going to happen in the consummation? Well, in its fullness, yes. But how does it happen here if it isn't that the fact that when we come to a place where we respond to God in His irresistible grace and confess our sins, that He produces His faithfulness and His grace and His mercy upon us to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all the unrighteousness that our sin has caused. Isn't that amazing? That God himself has declared us forgiven, and we respond by coming and confessing our sins and asking him for forgiveness. 
And then God is faithful to give us that forgiveness. And so there is a reconciliation. And in that salvation or salvific moment, I become one with God and reconciled to God because he's imputed to me the righteousness of Christ, which gives me right standing with God Almighty. And that's not just a theological exegesis. It is actual living reality because the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. Now, how do I know that? How do we know that? Scripture says, if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He will do what? Make alive, quicken the King James says, but make alive your mortal body. There's something when you became a born-again creature in God, you had new life and were born spiritually. There is generally a joy. Could we ask you whether there's joy when you came to know Christ and you made your profession of faith and knew that you were forgiven? I mean, the joy on your face as you were being baptized today was, was a beautiful picture of that. And so in human form, you gave us a picture of who Christ is inside of you. Just think about that. That's amazing. But it's true. And so we get the opportunity to live in communion and fellowship with God in a way that we get to express to the world and to one another who God is. How many of you have ever heard the, the expression, you are the Imago Dei? Have you ever heard that? It's a Latin expression, which means that you are the, you are the image of God. We are image bearers of God Almighty, but the way we bear the image is because we have the life of the Spirit of God in us. So I want this whole, if you will, foundation that we have built theologically is simply to say that to love God is impossible without God. If God didn't put the deposit of His Spirit inside of you and me, there is no way I could have communion and experience oneness with God who is love and receive His love and also out of that volitionally, not in an obligatory sense, I don't do things for God because he's done so much for me. And trust me, I think all of us have heard some measure of that, that Jesus has done so much for you. What are you going to do for him? I would say, love him and obey him. That's it. But the point is, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but the point is, is that you can't give something that's never been deposited in you. Any of you ever written a check on an account that didn't have any funds in it? <laughs> Your bank is very quick to let you know that you have overstated and overextended yourself. And you and I can't love God without God. We can't believe God without God. Again, how do we know that? Jesus says in John 15, in his parable of the vine and the branches, he said, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing's a pretty absolute concept. If we are not the branch that's connected and grafted into the vine, we get disconnected, we don't bear fruit. If we're connected and one with him, we have the capacity to love him. 
and give back what he's given to us. That's the beautiful thing, is that God himself has given us the ability to love and respond to him. And that, my friends, is what the doctrine of the church, known as the doctrine of the mystical union with Christ, it is our union and our oneness with God that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And the reason why it's called mystical is because it's not understandable. And if you were a Presbyterian or a Reformed background, we love to understand theology. We like to diagram, we like to figure out, we like to exegete, we like to make a nice protocol order procedure because Presbyterians do things decently in order. And I am one, so therefore I can take a shot at ourselves. But, uh, you know, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it is mystical because it is gifted by God who is unfathomable to be known. There is so much. I mean, God is infinite and we're finite in our being but yet infinite because the Spirit of God lives in us. Just think about that, that you have divinity and humanity all wrapped in one. And if you were in a good Presbyterian church, you are totally depraved and totally saved in the same being. How does that exist? How am I sinful and fully redeemed? How am I depraved and fully have the capacity to be one with God? And if you can explain that, I'll be glad to give you the mic and you can finish up. But the beauty of it, folks, is, is this, that God has made it mystical because he wants us to depend and to know and to walk in communion with him. God has given us one thing to truly motivate us in the context of, and, and to empower us in his love. And that's certainly knowledge, wisdom, and discernment, but it's the key gift is faith, because the Word of God says without faith it's impossible to please God. So God's given us faith to believe Him. Faith is trusting God. Faith is believing God. And all this foundation is really, really important because understanding that God has loved us gives us the capacity to love God and to commune with Him. My loving God is not doing for him. My loving God is allowing myself to receive the forgiveness of God because I've confessed my sins. God didn't force me to believe that by a brain transplant. I actually had to come to a cognitive decision in my own life, not that I believe that that was the issue. God is the instrument. God's divine purpose, election, predestination is all true. But it is also coupled with the paradox that I truly had to bow my knee before God Almighty when he convicted me of my sin and ask him for forgiveness. And God, being faithful and just to do so, gave it to me. And not only in my salvation, but every day of my life. So again, the ability to walk in communion with God, to give my love, my heart, my life, my soul, how does it happen that I could do all of that? Because Scripture says we should love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. My whole being. But if God Himself inhabits me by His Spirit and I walk in communion with Him, I can give all that because God allows me to. God empowers me to. God is living and loving in and through me. 
And this is really important because the second great commandment is to love you, my neighbor, as I love myself. How many of you have ever wrestled with that scripture? (laughs) Yeah, how do I love my neighbor like I love myself? That's a tough question. Is it me becoming the quintessential self-idolatrist, egomaniacal narcissist and saying, oh, I love me? Aren't I wonderful? And if you are as wonderful as I, then I will love you. No. The ability to love my neighbor as I love myself is the question is begged, how do I love me? And I think we just covered that subject fundamentally by saying this, that when I get convicted of my sin, how many of you, like me, wrestle with it and try to figure a way out of it? Come on, be honest. Yeah, yeah there, there we go. We all try to work our, out our own salvation. I offend my wife, so I try to be, what, nice to her and kind to her and try to atone and make up for my unkindness. I have been so cruel and sinful toward that woman, I would have to live three lifetimes to make up and atone for what I've done. And if I may be so bold, my love, to say you'd have to do the same thing. And Sandy's very gracious in that. But truly, I mean, we can't make up for our sins. Forgiveness, the forgiveness of God is absolute. So the way I love me is to avail myself to the fullness of communion and restoration of communion to the one who is love by confessing my sins and asking God to forgive me. And God being faithful to forgive me, he will forgive me. And then I learned to ask God to give me faith to believe it. How many of you have asked God to forgive you and then promptly didn't believe it? Come on. Yeah, right. We don't believe that God really is who he says he is, and we don't believe that God will do what he says he does because we have not experienced truly the life of God in community as deeply as God would desire us to. We are supposed to be the living expressions to one another that the forgiveness and the love of Christ is real. Paul says to the Corinthians that we are his living letter, that people can touch and see and know that Jesus Christ is real. He is who he says he is. And if the same Spirit of God and Christ that's raised him from the dead lives in us, we have the capacity to forgive and not extract out of the other person some kind of price to pay. You prove to me, my friend, that you're not going to sin against me again. You know, you can ask me to forgive you, and I tell you, yeah, but I'm, I'm moving back. I don't want to hit the guitar or the stand here, but I move away to protect myself, and I make you come over some hurdles to prove to me you're going to be a good man and not do that again to me. That passive-aggressive type of behavior is from hell itself. And yet it's understandable because it's the way the culture, the world, and many of us have been raised and we've experienced that in life. But God is saying, "Mm, not so much anymore, folks. I want you to grow and learn and have the hope and the joy of being able to be in communion with me and to experience my love for you 
And in so experiencing it and receiving it, and how many of you know that you cannot let God love you? You can make a choice to not let God love you. And what I just set up was exactly how it happens. We start to make you prove that, you know, that, you, that you, you, you're not going to do that again to me. So I'm protecting myself. But yet Scripture says, who's my protector, defender, and provider? So I'm trying to provide for me by my rejection of you what God himself only can give to me. And when I do that, I don't let God love me, and I certainly don't let God love you. And so when those dominoes start to fall, if I'm not receiving the love of God, not loving myself, I won't love you. And when those dominoes fall, we're really in trouble. Because 1 Corinthians says, even if I give all my money to the poor and give my body to be burned, without love, the communion and fellowship with God, it profits me nothing. You can do the deeds of God without the relationship and the love of God, but that will make you a very dangerous creature. But when you do the deeds of God resultantly because of God living in you, then you become the Imago Dei, the beauty of divinity and humanity here on earth, such that we become the glorious expression that says to each other, His kingdom is becoming and His will is being done because I love and I forgive and I want to walk in communion with you. That is the glorious hope of what Jesus just spoke in the Scripture. To love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love our neighbor, one another, as we love ourselves. So when I see myself in sin and I respond to the work of the Spirit of God and bring, who brings conviction, that I move back and say, Father, would you forgive me for my anger and my bitterness and my hatred? And God, would you give me faith to believe that I'm forgiven? And God starts to seal that faith because He's faithful and just. Then I see myself as being brought back into right standing and the rest of that scripture from 1 John 1 9, which says, And he is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all its unrighteousness. So if I'm cleansed from unrighteousness, righteousness is imputed, and I'm back being one with him. And if I do that for myself in response to God's love, guess what I'm going to do with you, my brother? I'm going to invite you to that as well. And I contend that that's the way we express who God is to one another, that we allow ourselves to experience and become living, if you will, vessels to express the life and the love, the forgiveness, the reconciliation, the redemption that will make us one with God, one with each other. And Jesus' statement that you will know that you are mine by the way you have love. For one another. So in that manner, my friends, I invite you to receive that which God is speaking to us this morning so that we would walk in communion with him and enjoy that in communion with one another. And as you are here to declare to Lawrenceville that Christ is who he says he is, I believe if we walk in greater measure that way, our lives become the human invitation 
just like your lives became the human invitation to counter that Jesus is who he says he is. May he do that in our lives. In Christ's name, let's pray. Father, how gracious and how kind you have been to meet us, Lord, this morning. Thank you, uh, Father, for the joy of being able to hear you, experience you, walk with you. Lord, I'm honored and blessed that you would uh, bring us together this morning. Father, I pray that you would outpour, continue to outpour your Spirit, Lord God, upon us. That we would learn to see in greater measure you, ourselves, others, and our life circumstances. That we would hear your word and will. And Father God, that we would, as we would hear it, Lord, that your word would become living and active in us. Father God, that it would renew our minds, transform our lives, and that we would see your kingdom come and your will being done here on earth as it is in heaven, in Lawrenceville, in our homes, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Father, in Jesus' name.